You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. We would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land. We pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening. I'm Lauren Taylor, here with Simon Winkler. We're broadcasters on Melbourne's 3RRFM, and today we're very happy to bring you our conversation with this year's esteemed M Pavilion designer, the influential Australian architect, Glenn Merkett AO. Often referred to as Australia's most famous architect, Glenn is the only Australian recipient of the Pritzker Architecture Prize and is internationally recognised for environmentally sensitive and responsible designs with a distinctive Australian character. Glenn Merkett's M Pavilion, commissioned by Naomi Milgram, offers a rare opportunity for the public to experience Glenn Merkett's singular and striking work. Like the houses he's designed since the 1970s, this new seasonal structure is open to its surroundings in Melbourne's Queen Victoria Gardens and sited to take full advantage of its environment. It's an ideal space in which to enjoy M Pavilion's extensive programme of free events. Glenn Merkett's design philosophy, to touch the earth lightly, motivates him to design in response to environmental factors, using locally sourced materials and to sensitively fit into the Australian landscape. The M Pavilion is, in essence, a tent and was inspired by a lightweight airplane that once took the architect on a trip to see ruins in the Mexican tropical wilderness. We were lucky to sit down with Glenn in the pavilion itself on a warm Friday morning just weeks out from the opening. We hear all about this experience in Mexico, his celebrated career and how other aspects of his upbringing have led to the architect he is today. It's a wide-ranging conversation about experimentation, creativity, discipline and design. Glenn starts by telling us about the inception of the project. When I received this commission, I was given the layout of the footings which were square and they were 2.4 metres uh, each direction and so it generally generated a square building and I showed Naomi the possibilities of the square building but then I showed her also the possibility of a rectangular building and I said this building responds far more closely and related to the city it relates to the gardens but I don't want to design a building that's going to block the gardens and I don't want it to be a structure that is a structure in itself but I want the structure to breathe into the gardens and for the landscape to pass through the building so the building's not going to interrupt the landscape and she said that's the one I want and I said it goes outside the footings she, she said let's worry about that later and so I spoke to the builder and builder said that's no problem at all I just put a couple of screw piles in that's fine so I was away so I was starting to design this rectangular building and it was one morning there and when you're designing or many of us who design um, we go into a sort of a state of reverie and that state of reverie is the state of dreaming between dre sleeping and waking and you're visualizing and I was visualising this very lightweight roof and I wanted it to have a, a, a lantern-like quality that it was floating uh, in this landscape. And all of a sudden, it came up this, uh, this incredible experience I had in 1986. 
and I had been in a, a wonderful Mexican town, uh, 2,000 metres above sea level. Uh, uh, a, a, the main city nearest was Tuxla, and then we, we drove the two hours up uh, to 2,000 metres to a town called San Cristobal de las Casas. And there I had a friend uh, who had worked in Sydney and had a, 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 a pension there, and we stayed with him. And he had a friend who was an architect as well, and the architect said to me, you know, there's been some marvellous ruins discovered down in southern Mexico here, almost on the Guatemalan border. And the only way you can, two ways to get in, one is horseback, and that takes 10 days, or you can fly in in a very small plane. And I'm used to small planes because I grew up in New Guinea and we flew in small planes all the time. I said, well, look, if we can do that, why don't we do it? Then I met some other people in town and we all went together uh, in this little plane, a single engine, high wing, strutted monoplane. It was, it was the, an Oster, mm. called an Oster. Mm. And uh, we flew into this, over these jungles and the jacarandas were out and it was so beautiful. Then I looked out across the way and there was this great slot in the landscape. It was a tea slot. And I thought, said to the pilot, what is that slot? And he said, that's the landing strip in that. And I said, we're going to land in that. And I'd, I'd done my... Uh, training down at Point Cook here in the last uh, of the National Service in 1955. And uh, I knew aircraft needed to have a certain distance for safety. And uh, uh, he said, look, once we get the plane lined up, once we get into that, that hollow, we'll get very even wind and we'll, we'll land. And so we landed in this beautiful place and it was a total jungle. Now visualize the temperature was in the order of 36 to 38 and probably a 95% humidity. It was most uncomfortable tropics and the forests were filled with malaria carrying mosquitoes. And the only way you didn't get bitten was to have long sleeves, lots of insect repellent, and be as often as you can in the sun, not in the shade. And we then visited this marvellous ruin of Yakshalan. It had been found uh, some five years, ten years before, and it had been restored to the level of it being safe, mm. so that it still maintained its integrity of the ancient ruin. It was the most beautiful experience. Then came lunchtime, and we came back and we said, well, where are we going to have lunch? And the only place we could have lunch, you don't have lunch on the ruin, you don't have lunch in the, in the, in the forest, the only way you can have lunch is in the, in the airfield. And we all immediately went straight to the shade of the wing of the aeroplane. And that shade de defined the first aspect of placemaking. And that placemaking is very important. Then my friend brought out a tablecloth. He put the tablecloth down. And that was the second aspect of placemaking. And then we all sat around the edge of it and we had cold water and we had frozen mangoes as well as other things for lunch. How beautiful was that? And then after lunch they went back to it and I said I just want to stay here for a moment because the wing of the aircraft was facing Yuxhalin Ruin.
And this ruin was a great ancient stone ruin and it had ficus where the roots were like an octopus over the whole of this ruin. It was just extraordinary. And I wanted to see this. And then I got my rucksack, put it up against the wheel of the aircraft and I laid on the rucksack and here I was, not only having established place, but I had a st in this what was equivalent to a huge forest and parkland, but I had also found a, a, a beautiful, cool area. Mm. And I was looking back and I said, this is fantastic. And all of a sudden I realised when I was designing this building that I was designing about this experience. I guess um, standing, you know, under, well, we're sitting at the moment underneath this uh, M Pavilion structure, which uh, kind of represents almost like a, a tent, like all the sort of sails in, in some way here. Um, we read that your for this project, you went right back to the original definition of what, what a pavilion is, though. Is that yeah. right? Yes, it is. Um, you know, uh, one of the first things you need to do when you've got a, a program like a pavilion, well, you say, well, what is a pavilion? And the best way to find that out is to see it, what it might be in French and what it might be in English. And the dictionaries all come up with the same sort of uh, uh, discussion, and that is uh, the pavilion originally was a tent uh, made of canvas, often quite elaborate, uh, and mostly in a garden. And the that, that's the it's Middle English, and for the French, it's papillon, and which is butterfly, and that's where you get the fly of a tent. So it's all both related to the tent. So I said, well, um, I'm not designing a, a build, not going to be designing a building that is a, a building about uh, timber and uh, brick and all those other things apart from it being having to be removed, but it's related to the tent. So I wanted the tent-like material. And so that's where I researched the membranes and then aircraft fabric for the ceiling. It gives the most beautiful translucency. So the, the fabric we have here for the ceiling is an American uh, aircraft fabric that is translucent, that gives the most beautiful quality of light, and that the upper roof is a, a, a Ferrara uh, membrane and uh, it's uh, translucent and it has a, that, like canvas, has that lightweight quality. Uh, it's white, like a te most tents were white, not quite as elaborate as some of those tents and it's more elaborate than some tents. And so, yes, the answer is uh, it very much all came together the research about what a pavilion was, uh, the experience in Mexico, and the most important thing was addressing the city. So that sitting in the tent here, sitting under the roof, mm. I can see the city. I can, around, the, around here you can see the river. So I have these layers. So th the building is one of the layers, but there's another aspect. It's f facing approximately north. And look where the shadow is. This is summertime, and that shadow creeps back to the first joint outside the columns. And it might come a little bit inside that joint, but the, the important thing for me was that in the summertime, this, this, this building enjoyed that shade of the wing. And this is where people want to come, because this makes a place. Mm. 
the shade makes the place, the columns define the place, the f paving defines the area of the place. So these all came together as part of the thinking of orientation and not only that, you get your north wind and you get your south winds. So the air continues through the building. And if it gets too high, the wind gets too, should I say, too cold, then there's a blind that drops out of the ceiling and blinds drop down all the way along on this southern side against the southern cold air. And this becomes a form of a sustainable air conditioning or <laughs> a, a climate plan? Well, it's, it's part of modifying when it gets too uncomfortable. Yes. Excellent. You, you hinted a little bit at this before, the idea that a temporary structure of this nature can be a great playground for experimentation. And as Lauren mentioned before, your illustrious career has been decades long. And so we're very interested to hear what are the areas in which you are still very motivated to experiment and explore? Where do you see the new frontiers? Well, the new frontier is every new project uh, is the new frontier. But, you know, my father during his last days of life said to me, um, I'd already graduated, I was working for an office, and he said, what do you think your future is? And I said, I think my future is in private practice. Um, and he said, and what sort? And I said, well, I'd like to have a practice that is not static, that has experimental things to it. And he says, Who's going to pay for those experiments? And I sp he probably was thinking, I'm, you boys are going to be left, some, girls and boys are going to be left some money. Don't you use it on your own experiments? That's probably what he was thinking. <laughs> I know how he thought. <laughs> uh, and the experiments I recognised uh, had to be very careful. They had to be well judged, and 99% successful had to work. Um, for my first 10 years in practice, I did three new houses. I would have done over a hundred uh, 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 alterations and additions. My father said to me as I entered, as you enter practice, you must remember, you must start off the way you would like to finish. And further, he said, remember that for every compromise you knowingly make in your work, and that is not about arrogance, that is doing something less than each of us is capable of doing, then he said the result when built will represent the quality of your next client. So you do something less than you're capable of, that's the sort of work you'll get. And I think that was extremely important to me. And so I've never been hindered by looking at alternatives. Um, what are the options? But I can't do anything silly. It's got to have a rational basis to it. Mm. But I also want it to be really good. Mm. And I see the attempt in, in I think out, as architects, we should be attempting to be able to work in a way that joins the rational and the poetic. That they can't be separated, they should be the same. Mm. We love that phrase. Mm. How do you find that point, the rational and the poetic? Well. When every time you do something that goes left field, you then start challenging oneself, one challenges oneself, asking the questions. Is it sensible? Is it, is it totally rational? And if it's not rational, you say, okay, 
it's an idea, but it's not not worthy of pursuing. But if it has a, it, it, what I can say is it must do th- at least three things that are functional things for it to su- be sustained as an idea. Glenn, how long are you, or how much time do you need to spend in a certain location before you're sort of committing to any particular design or any particular materials? Yeah. As one gets more experience, the amount of time reduces because one's observation becomes much more acute as one gets older, if one has been thinking throughout one's career. And in the early days, I used to go back to the site or maybe five, six, seven times, even known to have camped on site uh, in early days. But today when I go on the site, I can pick up very quickly in, in a, a, for example, a site that hasn't been, been mucked up uh, at all. Uh, I look to where maybe the most degraded part of that site might be. And I, I'll start looking at that area to build because I've built on the best part. I retain the degraded and I've lost the best. And so I'm looking for the degraded part as, as a beginning. And then I look at the, the, the flora. And if the trees are a particular sort of tree that I'm, I, I'm aware of, whether it be uh, a, a, a Carimbia maculata or uh, a Tristani or whatever it is, uh, I can tell whether I'm getting into rainforest, uh, marginal rainforest, uh, dry sclerophyll, wet sclerophyll forests and I can tell what the soil depth is likely to be and the soil condition and the moisture content mm-hmm. and I can tell that very quickly just by the trees but by those trees I can also know what, what birds and insects come so I know when insects come the birds will come and what sort of insects are there what birds will be there and what the ground conditions will tell me what what animals are likely to be whether they're, 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 they're possums or whether they're, they're, they're dingoes or whether they're kangaroos or whatever they are mm-hmm. Uh, the grasslands will tell me all that, depending upon where I am in relation to a city. So I wouldn't have known that when I first started, but it's just experience can do that. And when I came to this site, I, I recognised that below me here, there, there were marshlands. And you can even tell here by walking out in these areas here, the amount of moisture, even in this sort of condition, the marshlands are really really significant part of the, the Arrow River system. So I wanted to build just up from the marshlands and that's where the site was selected and appropriately selected. If it hadn't been appropriately selected, I would have said so. And, and so with this here and then the river and then, then the, uh, the city, I was able to look at this placemaking and so I was able to assess it fairly quickly. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast with esteemed architect and M Pavilion designer Glenn Merkett, with myself Lauren Taylor and Simon Winkler from Melbourne's Triple R FM. This interview was recorded on site in the lead up to the M Pavilion opening as we sat down with Glenn within the structure in Queen Victoria Gardens. In this next part of the conversation, we hear how his design communicates with its environment. We also hear how the design elements echo details of his experience sheltering for lunch under a plane wing in Mexico all those years ago. Of course, I'm in a park. I have to my north the city. We have then the river and then we have the, 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 the Queen Victoria Gardens. And we're in a place that does not necessarily have a place. And how do we establish place in this park? And also be able to have areas where people can 
be outside it, yet inside it. And instead of putting the building against the forest, I pulled it away from the forest so that there was area each side of the building where people can sit and see what's happening inside, so-called inside. Uh, it's inside, outside. Uh, it's an extension of the, the platform. But if you look at the paving, you start to see the tablecloth in the landscape. And then when you look at the roof, you look at the wing. And remember the wing of the Oster was a fabric wing. So it all came together as saying that I can make this wing translucent. I can make it the place at night time that will be lit and it will read like a lantern. And so the analogy is very direct in many ways. And in these fabric, tensile fabric structures, which I've never done one before, but doing a project like this gives one, as an architect, the opportunity of doing things one has never done before. But you don't do it for the sake of difference. You do it because there's an opportunity to find another development in one's experience to present it to the public. And I think that was extremely important to me. And to select the right sort of materials, the right sort of, of space, uh, the space that flowed and didn't interrupt was extremely important to me. I love the idea that the park maintains its integrity so that the park moves through the building. The building is only in a sense a temporal thing. It is almost not there, but it is there. It's got certain functions that gotta have, be, have to be, such as a roof for when it rains. And you'll notice that unlike most tensile structures, this actually has an eaves. It's not the fabric that finishes at the edge as the eaves. And I've put in this garnet blast stainless steel edge, mm. which then distributes the water over the whole of the, the drainage system on the ground. Uh, it gives a finesse to the roof, but all of a sudden you start to see the aileron of an aircraft wing. That was a pretty unconscious thing, but it's something that just came out of it. The most important thing in a building like this is the finesse in detailing. So if you start to look at all the tension elements, and you look at the blind wire systems, you look at the connections at, at, at the roof, you'll see there's a lot of thought gone into how the building was put together because it has to be pulled apart to be removed. So the process of construction, of putting together, has to be understood of pulling apart to be able to save every component. And furthermore, the paving is laid on earth. It's reinforced earth. It can be all taken up and reused. So not a single element will be lost. Glenn, for this podcast, we'd love to go a little deeper with you into some of the themes and, and concepts that underlie your practice. In your words, you've said the whole question of observation has been absolutely critical to your life, to be able to read the country, to read the land, to read the water and the landscape. How do you, how do you cultivate this ability to observe? Well, um I grew up in Papua New Guinea. In 1942, I came to Australia, where my family were from. 
Growing up in New Guinea, we lived in a very wild area uh, known as the Upper Watert, uh, on the Watert River, uh, adjacent to Surprise Creek. I was raised largely by uh, nationalist Papua New Guineans and with very many of the uh, indigenous peoples, you will find that they have a, a great respect for the night, the dark, and a great fear of it. And being raised by Papua New, Guineans, uh, New Guineans, I had a great fear of night and dark because I was taught that's when the evil spirits came. And you know, I was a child. I was there from the age of five months till I was nearly six years old. And to be raised at that period uh, with those sort of background, it gives you a fear. And fear creates observation. That's how I learned observation. And then, what it, when I came to Australia, I never lost the fear of the darkness. Never. Even to today, I have a level of fear of the darkness. Now, here I am at nearly 84, and I still have a fear of the darkness. But this is what happens to a child. You become brainwashed, and you ne very rarely get it out of your system. And so, this area of, of, of observation also has its really positive side and that is to look at nature to look how a leaf is formed look at the structure of a leaf look how the structure of a branch goes into a tree look how birds build a nest the, the beautiful things look how a bee forms a hexagon look at a snowflake that every snowflake is al almost everyone is different but they all respond to being a hexagon mm. these are this is the observation and this observation has allowed me to understand rhythms and patterns. And so, have a look at this building here. Look at the rhythm of the column. Look at the rhythm of the paving. Look at the rhythm of the paving as it comes to the column and the paving changes the direction. So it defines a zone. These are elements that are about observation and it's telling us how we do things and what comes as a natural, easy way of doing things so that it looks as if it was so easy to do let me assure you it's not but it must look to anybody else easy easily done now this building you might look at it and say it's so simple it must have been so easily done let me assure you there is nothing easy about this building engineering wise ACOM uh, where the engineers did a fantastic job on it. The builders have done a most beautiful job on it. The clients have been the best clients you could ever possibly imagine to have. All these things come together and if you as an architect act responsibly, then it should come together as well. Excellent. That's beautiful. Well, speaking about responsibility um, and sensitivity and uh, I suppose a collaboration with nature that you've described this building breathes into the park we really want to talk to you about your practice of sustainability and treading lightly on the earth for which you are very well known can you define s sustainability for us in your terms yeah uh, sustainability is only one element of a million elements in architecture and for it to become such an important element just it just shows us how little we we are addressing the real issues of today. Um, in the, even in the Institute of Architects, we have a we have a, a, an award for sustainability. All buildings 
There should be no award for sustainability. The sustainability should be no different to getting water into the building and the sewage away from it. It should be an automatic thing. So there are several levels of that you've got to deal with sustainability. One is the whole issue of air conditioning is not sustainable. I do recognise in different climatic conditions, uh, for example, Tasmania, southern parts of Victoria, can get very cold, the high country gets very cold, and it will need heating. Now, what most people don't recognise is that whilst we do know that uh, the particulation of burning a fire is a, is a problem, and the smoke is a problem, but on the other hand, the burning of timber is a zero carbon factor, because the tree, for its first 20 years of life, gives off oxygen in its growth, taking in the carbon dioxide, giving us all the benefits of breathing our life sustenance. That is really important. And after 20 years, the tree has about a zero carbon footprint because the bark falling off, the leaves falling off, whether it be evergreen or deciduous, the leaves still fall off. And the, that, that, that then consumes the oxygen in breaking down but it breaks down to soil mm. for a start so it gives us our quality of earth which is very important now in talking about touching the earth lightly that is not originally my statement it was given to me by a, a man by the name of Brian Klopper an architect from Western Australia who when we were at a national awards event here in Melbourne he said to, came to me and he said to he said, I've observed your work over many years and there's a marvellous statement by the Aboriginal people here in Western Australia and that is to touch the earth lightly. And he said, I regard your work as, as close as anybody to getting to touching the earth lightly. Now, touching the earth lightly is not putting down five columns into, into, a, into the ground that you can pull out and nothing's left. Sustainability is about where do the products come from. If we're using timber that's come from Malaysia where the rainforests have been slaughtered, we're losing our, our, our basis for, for, for oxygen. If we're doing it from South America, we're losing our basis for, for our oxygen. If we do it in Australia, it's the same thing. So if we over harvest, so sustainability for a start is we must not use more than that which can be by itself replaced. In other words, we can cut the forest so long as the forests are growing at a rate faster than what we, we cut them. And that occurs in Finland, for example. Their forests grow at a greater rate than what their consumption is. So that's about sustainability. Sustainability is all about the minimization of, of materials. How, and then furthermore, there are, the other area is, take for example, the use of different materials. Timber in the forest, cut and finished as, as a door, takes five megajoules per kilogram to, to, to process to, to the final state. That is taking it from the forest, transporting it to a mill and doing it, in, doing it into the finished state. Mm. Now we go to steel. Steel takes 42 megajoules per kilogram as opposed to five. Now, how much, look at this here and we try to minimise 
on the steel. Now, there's quite a lot of steel, but we try to minimise on it. And aluminium takes 143 megajoules per kilogram. So if you use aluminium, you must use it sparingly. So it's how you use materials, how you can retrieve those materials. That's about sustainability. We're chatting with uh, Glenn Merkett, the award-winning architect and uh, designer of this year's M Pavilion. Uh, you can hear we're on site at M Pavilion at the moment. It's still uh, under construction. You might hear some sweeping going on in the background there. But um, Glenn, as an architect that's practised for now 50 years, and congratulations on that, that's a massive achievement. How has your, your own architectural practice shifted and evolved during that time? Would you say maybe your philosophies and, and priorities have, have changed over the years? I grew up in a family where particularly my father was a very professional father. It just wasn't an ordinary father, he was a very professional father. And he was committed to raising children. And in that commitment, it included a sport, it included music, uh, it included uh, design. Uh, so we were all swimmers, water polo players. We were all uh, 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 pianists, um, five of us in the family. The three older children uh, are separated from two, and the war separated the, the, the first family and the second, the sec, first family and the second family. And in doing that, it taught us discipline. Uh, we would be up in summertime, 5:30 in the morning, a glass of orange juice, a run down to the swimming baths, a half-mile swim and a, maybe a 100-metre dash, walk back. Uh, I had to clean the bathroom. Each member of the family had to do something before we did a, a one-and-a-half-kilometre walk to school. Then we'd have school all day. Father would meet us in the afternoon down to Manly, we'd, Manly Baths. We'd again swim a quarter of a mile, maybe two 100-metre two dashes. Uh, home, music practice. Oh, I didn't include music practice in the first time, uh, morning. Music practice of a half an hour, and then homework, dinner, and then we go to bed. And this happened every weekday. On Saturdays, it was swimming, racing. Saturday morning, Saturday, that was afternoon. Saturday morning was, was uh, gardening or looking at doing things in the house. Sunday morning was swimming, racing. Uh, Sunday afternoon, we had off. Uh, and so it was highly disciplined. But I also lived in the most beautiful part of Sydney, right on uh, Middle Harbour, uh, waterfront Middle Harbour. Uh, just the reserve in front of us. I grew up with boats. We used to sail. Uh, um, and, and then when I reached the age of 12, uh, my father said, no more school holidays. We're now going to have you working in the joinery factory. So I worked every school holidays in a joinery factory and until I was about 17. And at 18, I was allowed to build my, start my building my own racing sailing boats. Mm. And that was a wonderful experience. So there, this discipline and, and his interest in what we were doing meant that we didn't go through the traditional adolescent problem, mm. problems for parents. We were so tired. 
We were so exhausted. We had no energy left for anything else beyond that which we had to do. Now, the time off, my father uh, used to, uh, he, he brought in architectural forum, architectural record from abroad, and he would present them to me uh, from the age of 13 and say, I'd like you to read this article and, and understand why this building is like it is. So I would read the article. Then he'd give me a series of questions. If I didn't answer them, I want you to read it again. This is the question. Read it through and see where you find it so you understand the principle behind this, this design. Yeah. So I had really, I was led by the nose into architecture, but I had no problem with that. I was very happy to be led into architecture because he had noticed that from the joinery factory, from when I was very young, he'd be, I'd ask him to bring home all the blocks of timber left over and I'd be building in my bedroom a, a house and I'd get a battery and a globe with copper wire and put inside and charge my parents penny each to come and see the house at night time. So they knew I was headed, headed towards architecture and so I helped my father build the houses. Uh, when I was 16 and 17, I actively contributed to building uh, the house that we last lived in as a family together before we started leaving home and going our own way. So I had building construction background, I had joinery background, and in building the boats I had metalwork background because of all the, uh, the stainless steel fittings that had to go with it. So making them, drilling them, cutting them, swages, bend, uh, tightening the swages and all those things. So one learnt about that. But at the same time, when I was 12, I was given by my uncle, uh, uh, a brother of my mother, uh, the principles fly of flight by CAM. And that gave me a great understanding of how aeroplanes fly. And by the time I was 14, I was designing my own gliders, my own rubber-powered, uh, rubber, rubber band propeller-powered mm. uh, aircraft, and they, were, they flew. And it was the most marvellous thing. So I started to understand about flight. I was into sailing. Mm. I was into f flying. Uh, I used to go flying with my uncle. Um, so aircraft, boats, uh, wind. So you start to learn about wind. You learn about nature. You learn about the clouds. Mm. You learn about water currents. You learn about depths. Mm. You look, look to see uh, peninsulas that will change the direction of water. So how you can get lift by air and lift by water and combine these, you can get ahead. Mm. So again, back to observation. Mm. That's it. <laughs> the interconnectedness of everything and certainly the upbringing that you had perfectly prepared you for all of those deep considerations. Very much so. Excellent. Well, I think we're almost out of time with you, yes. uh, Glenn, but we just want to thank you so much for your time and uh, people will be enjoying this beautiful shady spot uh, in the summer uh, at M Pavilion. Yeah. <laughs> it's very beautiful and very comfortable. Thank you so much for your time. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.